a lot of the work that you all do at the pudding is scrolly telling. So like you'll have one thing fixed and then the text is scrolling. So I know Amber did an alternative where like the two things are kind of interleaved optionally. So you can like toggle that on and off. I've never heard that term scrolly telling. I like it. Oh, yes. Russell is the king of scrolly telling. <laughs> Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. <laughs> What's up, party people? Are you ready for Core Web Vitals? Well, our friends at Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website. That's exactly why Raygun has made them into their real-time user monitoring tools. Now you can see how your Core Web Vitals scores are trending across your entire website in real time. And drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters most to you and your team. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action quickly. Identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance level, diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Learn more at raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start at 8 bucks a month. Again, raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Did you know we have a website? JSParty.fm is where you'll find our favorite episodes, the most popular ones, and a request form so your favorite guest or topic can get featured as well. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at JSPartyFM. All right, let's do this. It's party time, y'all. Hello, hello, friends. This is Amelia Wattenberger. I'm here joined by Nick Nisi. Ahoy, ahoy. And today we wanted to talk to some fine folks from The Pudding. The Pudding is a company that creates these wonderful data-driven interactive articles on the web. And if you haven't checked it out, go to pudding.cool. There's some really interesting deep dives there. And here today we have with us Russell Goldenberg. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. And Caitlin Ralph. Hi. Hi, Amelia. Hi, Nick. Hello. <laughs> I'd love for uh, one of you, maybe Caitlin, to give a deeper dive into the pudding, the company, um, a little bit of context around all it is that the pudding does. Yeah, definitely. So the pudding is like our umbrella company, but we're actually split into two different companies that have two different complete brandings and logos. So when you're going to each of their websites, you think there's two separate entities, but we're actually connected in the background. We're all the same team. So The Pudding, as you've been talking about, Amelia, is our editorial publication. If you go to The Pudding, which I suggest you do, like Amelia said, there's no subscriptions. There's no ads. We don't track page clicks. Everything is free, open to read. But to keep the lights on at The Pudding, we also have another company called Polygraph, which is our brand studio. This is where we do the same exact work at The Pudding, which is visual and data 
driven storytelling, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, is a purposefully vague definition of what we do. Because if you dive into our archives, it's definitely been changing more and more over the years. But we specialize in data and visual storytelling. We consider ourselves data journalists. And at Polygraph at our studio, we do that same kind of work for different brands, organizations, etc. Okay, so that's like the company layout. We're a team of eight, so we're very small. We've been around since about 2015. It started with just Polygraph. Um, Matt Daniels founded Polygraph. He got in touch with Ilya Blinderman and Russell Goldenberg. And in 2017, it split off between the pudding and Polygraph. So that's kind of like a brief history of how we got to where we are. How is that, Amelia? More prodding questions? Or is that good? That was wonderful. I also heard a story about how the pudding got their name. Oh, okay. (laughs) If you want to go into that. (laughs) The funny sub anecdote is that I actually started with the team all the way back in 2017 as an intern. And I spent an entire summer as an intern and didn't know how we got our name. I always thought it was like polygraph, like a lie detector and the pudding. I had no clue. The pudding is the proof is in the pudding. Nice. And polygraph is poly, like multiple graph instead of just um, a lie detector. So that's the the background between polygraph and the pudding names. Is there anything else, Russell? I know you guys debated for a while what to call the pudding. I want to say we actually wanted to call us like the proof. And in our research, I think we found that that was taken. And I feel like someone suggested to us the proof is in the pudding. And we're like, ha the pudding. And then it stuck. And that's my memory of it. I also just love the TLD that you're on. Pudding.cool and polygraph.cool. Just so, so cool. <laughs> we try hard. Yeah, I don't think I know any other sites that are on a dot cool TLD, <laughs> which makes it extra cool. I'd love to get into the process of actually making one of these stories. I know they're quite intensive and each one kind of like has its own data. You need to do research behind it. And like technically they're very impressive. I'd love to talk through maybe your process, Russell or Caitlin, and then also how that is different across the team, because I know people use different stacks. Yeah, I'll, I'll start here. And then I know, Caitlin, you, you haven't created a story for a little bit, but you definitely have in the past. So I want to hear your thoughts, too. I think the most interesting thing to me is that every story has a different process, and that's a great thing in the sense that we kind of get to tell the story in the best possible way that's right for that story. The downside, though, is that you sometimes have to start from scratch every time. So we don't have a ton in the ways of like a streamlined process. So it kind of comes with both sides of the coin. So I'd say from like in terms of like a story's life cycle, most of the time it starts with us. Well, definitely starting with a question. We usually have a bunch of brainstorming phases where we just kick around ideas and something stick and then someone starts looking into it. It's a, an organic process. We haven't really come up with this very, I guess, rigid structure to kind of keep things evolving. I'd say more often than not, we end up having to do a lot of work in actually figuring out and compiling our own data sources. I think it's very rare. It's exceedingly rare where like the data is just sitting there ready for us to pull down and start visualizing. I don't even remember the last time that was the case for myself. Even in like seemingly obvious ones, like sports stories, those ones are usually pretty straightforward because there's tons of data out there already. But even then, like, I mean, this kind of goes with, I feel like anyone in the the data science field, 
most of the work is actually doing like cleaning of the data and like, oh, this data isn't as robust as I thought it was. And so that's a big part of what we do. And then a lot of what we lean into is spending time creating data sets that don't exist. So I feel like our tried and true example is the story about um, women's pockets. So Jan and Amber created this story around pocket sizes, comparing them and men and women's genes. And that's not like a readily available data set. So they literally went into a bunch of department stores and grabbed genes and measured them like in the back. So creating their own data source. So we do a lot of that type of stuff. Or when I worked on with Matt a few years ago was um, creating this data set around Ali Wong's stand-up comedy routine. And we literally watched it, had a big spreadsheet going, annotated all this stuff. Kaylin, I think you helped out with that one too. And yeah, we, do, we definitely do a lot more of those type of stories where we try to come up with these interesting data sets that don't exist. And I think people, you don't see a lot of those out there because it just takes so much time and it's like big risk, big reward. You don't know what you're going to get. And we luckily have the luxury of being able to like test that out. So that's just the data portion. When we actually get into development, the same rule kind of applies. The only piece, actually nothing on our site aside from our homepage is actually like scaffolded out. Everything else, every story, there's no CMS. Everything is made from scratch on a per project basis. We have some starter templates in place, which you can definitely get into, but we really have leaned into trying to make the development experience for whoever's working on it, like something that they have like no constraints and they can just do whatever they want. Everything is statically hosted. So that's really our only constraint at the moment, but we have had exceptions where if something needs to be bigger and have like a dynamic backend, then we'll figure out a way. So I think that's our biggest philosophy is like, let's not give anyone constraints off the bat and see where that goes. I'll pause there in case Caitlin wants to jump in before we talk more tech stuff. Well, I think the only thing I can kind of add to that is just how we like package what Russell just said for a client. Because I think it's very difficult for them Mm. to wrap their head around the black box of creating an article like this. A lot of clients have never done like a visual storytelling project like this. So it's brand new to them. So a lot of what Russell just said, I try to distill down into four separate stages. So I always think about the story, creating kind of like a storyboard and narrative There's some data work, there's data analysis that sometimes happens in parallel as we're creating a storyboard for the article. And then there's design. I know we can get a little deeper into how we do design. People use different tools, people like different fidelity of design, but usually we're doing pretty hi-fi mock-ups for clients. And then we bring it into the last stage, the fourth stage, which is code and development. So that's just kind of like a distilled simple way to at least open up, like pull open the curtain and let clients actually see how we create something like this. But I also think it's kind of a good breakdown of our process very simply, you know? Yeah. Also, you can just see that Kayla and I, we think two little different ways. Kaylin's very good at like turning my organic, let's just do stuff into like a very systematic approach, which is really helpful for the polygraph side. Also something we should talk about a little bit later, which is we actually do approach projects very differently because of the nature of them. But getting back to like the tools and the tech stuff. So I didn't mention on the data side, again, we let everyone wield whatever they want. Like some people like R, some people like Python. I use exclusively like Node and I've been really into uh, Visi data lately, which is like the command line tool for data exploration. 
some people use MySQL. It's really all over the map. And again, we don't have any formal tooling. <laughs> Head shaking for MySQL. <laughs> yeah. So that's that spirit is again embodied on other processes, whether it's the design. So a, a lot of us use Figma just because we can like reuse assets and stuff. But again, really whatever works for you. And like I usually skip from pencil and paper sketching right into code. Uh, I know Jan like does to Caitlin's point, super high fidelity mock-up. So she's like, this is what I'm envisioning. And yeah, it's really, we try to make it a space for people to do what works best for them. And then the place that I care about the most is like the front end code. Um, I spend a lot of time kind of creating scaffolding and starter templates for us to utilize. So again, we're not totally reinventing the wheel each time. I suppose our most recent one that I'm quite fond of, no surprise to Amelia, is in Svelte. I'd say we're not like a traditional journalism outlet, but I think a lot of our workflows kind of stem are similar to what you might see more in newsrooms, mostly because a few of us have backgrounds in newsroom and journalism, but also just like the tooling that's used there just kind of fits with how we work. So we really lean into Svelte, obviously, maybe not obviously, made by Rich Harris, who's at the New York Times. We use a lot of different tools. So I mentioned we don't use the CMS, but like we have like our micro CMS. So for like injecting copy into our projects, we'll like use Google Docs and have like a thing that um, use ArchGML, which then like converts to the JSON so it can get piped into the build. And right now our starter template that I use mostly is um, made in Svelte and specifically Svelte, which has been a great and challenging experience using something that hasn't gone full, you know, it's still kind of in development and changes a lot. I'm currently live coding, doing a recording of our website in SvelteKit so you can follow along to see how it challenges me on a day-to-day level. But yeah, we're really into, I mean, I think I've converted a few people on the team to be into Svelte. I mean, it's just, just makes so much sense for the type of work we do. I've been finding it really great for dealing with um, data visualization specifically. And just, it's really nice when we have a lot of different levels of, I guess, engineering on our team. And it's the only framework that I've found that actually works across all levels because it's like a really easy learning curve to just like get started. So yeah, Yeah. we have a go. I really haven't used Svelte before, but it's something that's definitely on my radar. And it, it does really seem like... From my understanding of all of this, it really does seem like a perfect fit for for this because for my the way that I imagine using Svelte is like when I really want like granular control of a page or specific pieces of a page. And it just seems like it really gets out of your way and lets you focus on that. Absolutely. Amelia, I know you have a lot of experience with Svelte as well. Yeah, one of one of my favorite things. I was at um putting slash the polygraph last year. I worked very close with Caitlin on the agency side. And one of my favorite things about the whole team, there's about eight people at the pudding, is that everyone has their own workflow, which Russell was talking about a little bit, where you really do want to get the right balance of starting from scratch so that you can be creative and like think through different article formats and not just have like this template that you go through and also like being able to work quickly. So like you're not doing every single thing from scratch every time. And I know when I joined, Russell was still kind of evangelizing Svelte to the rest of the team. (laughs) I know this whole starter kit um, with kind of more of like a vanilla JS 
and gulp, I think, workflow. <laughs> and Russell and I really got into like using Svelte for these articles because it really feels like like the lightest weight JavaScript framework, at least that I've used, where you're really just writing HTML and CSS, and then you have like a script tag where you're writing JavaScript. And there's a few like framework specific syntaxes, like to do a for loop, you have to have the curly braces and you say hash each, and then you loop over some array. But other than that, it's like really basic HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And you can get a little bit fancier if you want to, but you don't have to, which is just a really good fit for this kind of article. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's opt-in, right? Like you can choose how much you want to svelte it up or if you want to really just run it mostly vanilla, you can too. And I think it's one of those things where the more you see, like, I think there's like lots of, I'm still having them. There's lots of like little light bulbs that go go off. You're like, I don't really understand why I would use this. And then you see it being done in a way that makes sense. You're like, oh, this just like changed how I can approach this. And then kind of, again, on the the starter template front, um, we have a lot, and this is something that Amelia started doing when she was with us, which was we had a lot of like specifically spelled like preset components or stores or things that we're like, okay, we've used it more than once. Let's turn this into something that we can just like take and use out of the box. And this is something I've been wrestling with a lot now is I feel like I never want to use libraries anymore because I'd rather just have a component that's right there that I can just go in and customize because I feel like it's more often than not that I want to change something core to how it functions. Like a good example is we have an accessible button set component. And I was like, this could easily be a library. But then I'm like, if I want to change this one little thing about it, it could be easy depending how it's written, but it's also could just be something that you have to write this hack for like, oh, I want to override the styling for this specific thing. And that seems annoying rather than just jumping into the component and mucking with it that way. So that's something I've just been embracing more is like creating these more reusable bits that are kind of part of the Svelte starter template that we can wield. And I know there's a few different places that are doing these things like with recipes and whatnot, but that's something I've really enjoyed with Svelte. And also because it's obviously going to build it at runtime, you don't have to be, worry about it being included by default unless you use it. So that's just like another observation. Yeah, that's another one of the really nice things about Svelte is I think at first they called it the magic disappearing framework. And then there's some reason they went away from that. But Essentially, there's no runtime. It just compiles and it kicks out anything that you haven't used. So they have like built-in transitions, but if you don't use them, then they're not going to increase your bundle size afterwards, which is really nice because as a framework, they can add in all of these goodies, like adding animations really easily, adding transitions really easily without having that impact of like, oh no, we're adding megabytes to the runtime. Yeah, we can just convert this to a Svelte party if we want. Like, just, <laughs> no more pudding. We can just talk about Svelte. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code 
Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, including us. Sentry also recently shipped a new SDK for Next.js applications. Check the show notes for links to more details. Best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG. So I'm curious with these pages, I think it's really cool how you set it up and you kind of start from this template and then bring in the data and and use it. But one thing that that's always driven into me with the use of JavaScript anywhere is how does accessibility play into that? And when you're telling a story with data, and oftentimes I'm presuming like a lot of them might have animated or interactive elements to it, how does accessibility play into visual storytelling with data? Yeah. It's a great question. I think it's a question that is probably becoming more mainstream in the past year in the data viz community. I feel like I didn't see a lot of it being discussed previously and something that is admittedly lacking and lagging compared to other places. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that we're not the best stewards of all time of this. It's something that we're working on currently. Like this year, I think it was just this year, beginning of this year, we put into place, we never actually had any um, kind of checklist for what we should even check before publishing a story. And that's something that my coworker, Amber and I, we former coworker, Amber and I worked on together at the start of this year. And we put together the, I guess, first step of many of like, what is like the baseline for what we need to do. And luckily, there have been a lot of great people working on this. So um, Frank, his, I think, Labaski. Sorry if I mispronounced that, I probably did. Who's been working on this thing called chartability. They've been kind of have a bunch of documentation specifically thinking through how to think through uh, data storytelling and accessibility. And it offers like a really kind of comprehensive look at all the things that you should be considering. So that's really been the framework. We've been basing things off. So we've got kind of like our foundational thing, which is just like your general accessibility, like can you go through the whole page just using your keyboard and all those other things that are kind of standard without data viz. And then there's kind of like different rungs of approaching it from a data viz perspective. I think the first is just like, I want to say the easiest low hanging fruit is having good copy and language and proper semantic markup around things. So if you have a chart, like you should be able to understand what the chart is about and like the main takeaways, right, from reading the title and the description, or if there is accompanying text, a lot of it is in using kind of having good summaries about what's in it. If it's especially if it's like a complicated chart mm-hmm. that you can't, you know, put like actual interactive accessibility stuff with, like having really good copy that helps also explain what is going on with this crazy chart. I think that's a good starting point having alternative ways of viewing the data. So something in my last real article that I did, there was a way to just like look at it in tabular format or have the data available as like a CSV download. So those are kind of a bunch. There's basically all these different things. Some like some are really easy and they get incrementally harder to implement and think of as especially as the visualization gets more complicated. Mm-hmm. But I think we're really following other people that are thinking more 
in this space more thoroughly, kind of following what they're doing and trying our best to like integrate these into our like day-to-day um, workflow when we publish a story. But I do know, and this is again, stemming from the journalism world, there's so much like fast and furious publishing that it's super obvious that this is something that falls by the wayside. I've noticed it at every single big news outlet, even the New York Times, especially the New York Times. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, even though I just did, because <laughs> they produce some of like the best visual interactive eye candy from a data visualization standpoint. Like there's very often times where they're, they're on deadline and something has to give. So like, I mean, there's probably different pressures being put on, like we need to get this out by tonight. Some of this stuff takes a lot more time to think through properly. So mm-hmm. there's definitely a relevancy factor. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of it is having a good framework for like, what do you actually have to check? But then there's like the tooling argument of like, is there things that we can do? So like when you make this, you don't actually have to think about it, but it will automatically create these things for you. So I think it's a little, a blend of both. And I feel like we're lucky that there's some people thinking through this. So we don't, we're not like pioneering this space, nor do I think we're like the ones that are, I guess, most uh, versed in it. So it's nice that this exists. I think the checklist is like really helpful. I think it'd be awesome also if y'all could share that publicly. But I also think it's hard to keep track of like, there's different types of accessibility, like data viz is visualizing information. So it's inherently really hard to make it non-visual because you've already mm-hmm. taken the data and made it visual. And now you have to make it non-visual again with the summaries, like you mentioned, Russell. But there's also like different types of colorblindness. So like making sure you're not using certain greens and reds because uh, what is it? Like 5% of the male population can't distinguish. Let's go with that. Yeah, it's five. <laughs> it's not five. <laughs> <laughs> There's like motion sickness. So like uh, a lot of the work that y'all do at the pudding is scrolly telling. So like you'll have one thing fixed and then like the text is scrolling. So I know Amber did an alternative where like the two things are kind of interleaved optionally. So you can like toggle that on and off. So I've never heard that term scrolly telling. I like it. Oh, yes. Russell is the king of scrolly telling. (laughs) I have written one library for it, but I think that's maybe I'm surprised that surprises me that you haven't heard it. I feel like that must be a very journalism-centric term for, yeah, those those stories that uh, Amelia was just describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd also love to hear, I know, Caitlin, you're involved in all of the client work, and I know there's differences between writing these stories or developing these stories for journalism and writing these stories for clients. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about, like, what are those differences and, like, how does that look on the client side? Yeah, definitely. So I started, like Russell said earlier, by making articles at the pudding. But the reason I was the first person on our very small team to have a specialized role focused at Polygraph. And the reason I kind of gravitated in that direction, I had my personal career goals that I liked management and things like that. And I wanted to go in that direction. But what I find exciting about the visual and data storytelling work we do at Polygraph is that I know you said at the beginning, we're not going to pit the pudding and polygraph against each other. Now it sounds like I'm doing that. But what I find exciting about polygraph is that, you know, right now it's set up that we can actually go outside of the page and do this kind of work. So all of the pudding articles right now live on the pudding's website. What we do a polygraph spans from, you know, it lives on all the different brands and organizations we work with sites, but we actually like do installation work. We've done work with the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery and stuff like that. So 
I think like the first part of the answer to that question is, is what I find really exciting is that there's a lot more variety in what we're doing. And Amelia, you remember a lot of these conversations, because there's a lot more variety, we find ourselves like straddling very interesting lines in between being more editorial with our client work or being more agency, flashy, pulling in some crazy JavaScript work to create like very immersive experiences with data, which like, you know, things that we've done with some of the installation work and stuff like that, or truly just like replicate our editorial nature for clients. What I've decided to do strategy-wise this year is dabble in both and show that in our portfolio, we've done both. We, again, we do see ourselves as data journalists. So that is like our expertise, that storytelling, but we can do a 40-foot installation for Universal Music Group's lobby offices of their artists and musician data, if that's something what someone wants us to do. And I think it also ends up serving as a creative outlet for people at the pudding to do different things as well. But that's a whole other conversation thread as well with how we set up our company. So go ahead, Russell, I see you. See your face. I know I'm opening my mouth. I know I, I'm used to it by now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add that it's it's very much like this symbiotic relationship, both financially, but then also technically. Because the g- great example is like the UMG case study. We created this again a big lobby visualization, and it wielded a bunch of WebGL stuff that we hadn't done before because we weren't forced to use it. So no one no one on our team had a background in it. But it was like, oh, we need to use this because this is the only thing that's like fit for this environment. So we got to do it, learn some stuff, and we're able to kind of integrate that back on to the other side. So sometimes it's nice when you have constraints and definitely with client projects, you have a lot of the constraints. And so it kind of forces you to push up against those constraints and like get comfortable. So I think it's like forced learning in a lot of ways for us, which is nice. Yep. That's really cool. That's like a such a unique thing about this too and this this storytelling and like being able to kind of break out of the constraints of the browser almost with all of that. And and you know, definitely breaking out of the constraints of like, you know, making this this crud app that has some basic state management and navigation and doing something just much more fun. Actually, the National Poetry Gallery, now that you mentioned that, was like maybe the best example of this. We actually had to render a video. Oh, yeah. And none of us, I mean, some of us have used some video software, but I was like, why make a video when I can create a JavaScript library that basically creates a 60 frame per second animation of like with D3 and exports each frame and then stitches the video together. So that's what we did. And I'm not sure if I would do it again, but it was really interesting <laughs> challenge because we're like, we have to make a video, which is not something we would normally think about doing from a data web perspective. So that was really fun. That was my favorite thing about the client work is like, I know y'all are super picky about like what stories you do both on the journalism side and on the client side. And I felt like working on the journalism side, it was too open-ended. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'd have to really believe in what I was writing about. Whereas on the client side, it was kind of like, okay, we have some pretty severe constraints and like they'll force us in a certain direction, which I thought was really nice. I, I think it's just interesting too, because it, this kind of goes more into our company structure and stuff like that. So I don't want to say too much about it, but also the differences of how people like to work 
too in these type of things. And I think you just really hit on that, Amelia, because I think everyone's like, oh, you want to work at the the pudding because you could do anything you literally want, which is pretty much true to an extent. Again, though, the reason why I gravitated more working with clients and stuff like that is there was constraints, even on your like mental state. <laughs> like I think putting articles, you could be thinking about it on a Saturday afternoon. But if I'm done picking a client on Friday, I can like kind of put it away. And I personally just prefer kind of some of that boxing a little bit when it comes to workflow, the work itself, and just like the experience on the projects and stuff like that. There's just a little bit more separation, but because we do both often, people get a little bit of each. So Yeah. And let's be real timelines. Like if you're like, we need to tell the client in two weeks what this is going to be and what it's going to look like, that really puts your feet to the fire in a great way. You have to make decisions. So that is nice. Yeah. And it's also nice to have the like reliable thread throughout the entire theme of like data. (laughs) We're visualizing data. We're finding data. We're making it understandable for humans. So there are people who go back and forth between the journalism articles and the client articles. And you can kind of like pick and choose, like, do I want those constraints or do I have something that I really believe in and I want to like pursue to completion? I want to get a little bit wacky, but it's always going to be in the browser. Whereas you could do a museum installation on the client side. And it's just like really cool to have those options, right? Like you could switch monthly, potentially. (laughs) How do those constraints get formed? Like, is it, this is the data that we have. And then do you like storyboard it somehow? Or like, how do you determine like, here's this mess of data and here's this beautiful story I want to tell with that. Russell, do you want to go into that on the pudding side? I think the pudding side, it's it's rare that we just have a bunch of data that we weren't already knowing what we wanted to look for. So I feel like this is much more common actually on the client side. And I feel like this is an exercise that we do often, right? Which is here's the data. Can you tell us what we should make? And I think that's where we really lean into everyone approaches this differently. So like I might sit down and be like, okay, well, I'm actually just going to like scan through this, data sheet you sent me and actually just really think about this topic more but someone else might be like i need to know like the summary of this i need to know the the mean of the data i need to know what it looks like the shape of it so i think everyone has a little bit of a different approach i think we often will do some very preliminary stuff and then i think early on we try to like just we call it like story timing we just try to talk about it and i think we've found that like just bouncing things off each other really gets us thinking about it in creative ways more quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't know, can I do any specific examples Yeah, on the client end? Well, actually, I'll talk for a second on the pudding end too. I'm about to do a talk at a university later, so I feel like I'm prepped for this, but <laughs> for this question. But we always do start with a question. It's very rare where we find, and I, I think Russell somewhat mentioned this, like it's very rare that we find just like a giant data set online and then we go in and mine the data and get insights. Then we think of the question. We're always like, going in with the type of story that we want to tell. And I think the way I think about that still feels a little bit amorphous. The way I think about it is that if I'm at a bar in New York with my friends on a Saturday night and I brought up this topic, could we actually have like some kind of debate and conversation about it and talk about it for a little while? And I think with that lens, that kind of like bar talk lens going to the pudding articles, I think often think about the woman po- women's pockets article. I could sit and talk with my friends for ages about how dresses <laughs> don't have pockets and things like that. So that is usually kind of idea selection part zero. 
And then it manifests itself in something called story time. Literally, I say this, my mom's like, you have a meeting called story time. And I'm like, yes, it's a long story. (laughs) But literally, that's what it is. Like we sit and we bring a lot of us will be like, I have the worst idea in the world. Let's just talk about it. And we talk about it and stuff like that and see if we can like spark that kind of conversation. So that's just a little bit more color on the putting in on the polygraph end. We have clients coming into us with every step of the process. You know, Russell and I are kicking off a project this week where the the clients have data. They're actually data scientists themselves. They have the data done, the insights done. It's in a Google doc, a narrative outline is already done linked to the different data sets that match that parts of the narrative outline. They even have some low level sketches and visual inspiration ready to go. So they're really giving us a head start here. So we know we're going to make now we just sprinkle in our like data storytelling prowess and make it come to life on the page. Or we have clients come to us literally just being like, we saw your work. We love your work. We have zero clue what we want to do with you, but we want to do something with you. And with that, usually I end up doing a consulting contract hourly with them where we actually kind of like embed in their team, meet with people and figure out the idea that we want to do using our expertise. And then we actually create a scope of work to go with this. So I'm not afraid if no one knows what they want to do, we'll figure it out. But we just have people come to us in various stages. So to Russell's point, it actually is messier often on the client side. And I think practically speaking, a lot of what we do is getting a sense of the shape of the data. Okay, is it like temporal stuff? Like how many different keys and stuff are we talking about? How many different data points? And then once we like have seen that, I think we have collectively just absorbed and consumed so much data data visualization out there. I think it's a lot about just being like, oh, what if we did something like this? And then let's like kind of use that as our jumping off point. So I don't think we're like thinking about this stuff in a vacuum. It's really just kind of amassing and just really consuming, living and breathing everything that's out there and then kind of remixing pieces and just knowing what might fit with what. So I feel like a lot of that is kind of where our ideas and visions come from. It's not just tunnel vision on the data set. And I think that's a real key to it. I love those two points because I think most people, when they see these articles, they think a lot of the work or all of the work is in what they see. And they're like, oh, how do they even make that chart? And it's like, oftentimes you need even a separate contract for like finding the data, parsing the data, exploring the data, understanding the data, and even getting to that, like, what is our main question for this piece? And then that's like a totally separate job. That's like often just like the tip of the iceberg. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Micro. Micro, aka M3O, is a new cloud platform built for developers by developers. Our good friend Asim Aslam is leading this. And if you're tired of AWS and feeling overwhelmed by the cloud, infinite billing, and an endless sea of docs, it is time for a change. The Micro team is reimagining the cloud for the next generation. M3O is a new developer-friendly platform to explore, search, and use simpler APIs for everyday consumption all in one place. Get access to the APIs you need in one click and test them right there on the web before using them. Simple, fast, and affordable. You won't get burned by bottomless billing. You top up your account and pay as you go. And right now, they're in early development and building out the first set of APIs, and they're looking for feedback from developers. Sign up and get $5 in free credits. Kick the tires, give them your input so they can build the best APIs you want to use every single day. 
Learn more at m3o.com. Again, m3o.com. All right, so I heard that you all, at least on the editorial side, are leaning a little bit more into a contractor network instead of doing everything with the people who are on the team. I don't know if, Caitlin, you want to talk a little bit more about how that transition is going and what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. Something that Russell and I love to do is talk about strategy. In fact, in like the December holidays, Russell, we had like what, like maybe three three hour meetings of just like talking about strategy, which sounds like I feel like so vague, but it really, it's one of my favorite things about being at such a small company in that we can like really like shape the strategy of an entire company very easily because we're so small. So because we have these kind of two entities, we could kind of decide like, oh, we want Polygraph to grow in parallel with the pudding, or we want the pudding to grow much more than Polygraph, but then Polygraph financially supports the pudding. So there's like a lot of interesting nuggets there. But what we decided to do at Polygraph is instead of increasing our personnel, we've decided to lean into a very small, so I'm not talking about like a 50-person contractor network, I'm talking like five to like eight people freelancers, contractors, people who are full-time freelancers and moonlight to work on our client projects with us, along with the seven other makers at the company who are like full-time who also do some of the client work as well. So oftentimes, you know, we'll have a one of the full-time employees working on the project and then we'll bring in maybe a contractor support for any of those stages I talked about earlier, dev, design, data, story, and... Russell has finally pushed me in this direction and bringing in a PM contractor as well for some projects because I would default kind of PM all the projects, which has been really exciting because I think from like a development standpoint and like just a capability standpoint, people are experts in different things. So we can bring in some really cool um, contractors who are, we just worked with a data art creative coder which Russell does a lot of, has done a lot of work with in the past, but no one is an expert on the team and has produced just like some amazing work. And now we know this person and we worked with him and now we can like wield him in different ways. So a lot of people are familiar with this being a full-time contractor and freelancer is like pretty common now. So we had a lot of people who wanted to work with us. So yeah, so that's kind of how we've been doing it. And then we've hired a, again, I was the first person who took this type of role in the past three months, we hired an equivalent of me at The Pudding, our managing director. So our second really specialized role and who actually just pinged me. And basically he is doing the same thing that I've done with Russell at Polygraph, which is building out our freelancers for The Pudding for the exact same reason. So I think Russell can talk more about freelancers at The Pudding because he was doing a lot of that management work at The Pudding before Rob came into the role. But that's how we've been thinking about it at Polygraph. Yeah, I'll just add on that. Well, first of all, I think we still have a form open somewhere. But if you are out there and are curious about contracting with us at Polygraph, we're always entertaining collaborations. So reach out. And then I'd also say that on the pudding side, this is something that we've actually just, we're trying to like pour some gasoline on the fire, so to speak. I don't know what the number is, but we've always had freelancer contributions. Some of our best and most popular stories have been from freelancers. And we just decided this year that 
it's something we want to lean into more. Um, we like to kind of learn about different topics and even just like different ways of telling stories by working with other people. And most people have like stories that they want to tell. And so it just gives us an opportunity to both work with those people and also just be a bit of a platform for people who want to do their own data-driven storytelling and maybe want to partner up with us. So we're just very much embracing the spirit of uh, collaboration, so to speak, on on both sides of the business. And I think it's something that we want to keep just leaning into more in the future. Yeah. It's good for everybody. Like it's good for us because it keeps us energized and it's, I think, good for the freelancers and contractors because they get work in in another outlet for telling stories or working on projects. And in the same way that, Russell, you said we have an outside forum. We actually, we don't do like, we don't accept pitches at certain points at the pudding. We like literally 24 seven accept pitches. So anyone can email us at any time and you don't need to be an expert in like every step of the process. You don't have to be a developer and a designer and a data person. You could literally just have a really great idea and you want to bring it to us and you want to collaborate with us on it. And we'll kind of fill in those gaps from there. And I think another really important thing, obviously a really important conversation going on is that, you know, the more freelancers we bring, the more diverse forces, the more experiences we can have on the pudding and the more we can give them a platform. I mean, it's not just contained to, you know, the eight people working here. So I think that also has like been really important just for the pudding and obviously it does manifest itself in a way at Polygraph as well. So that is it. Amelia, you go. I just really like how the DataViz community is made up of people from all different backgrounds. Basically, no one has the same backstory of how they got into visualizing data. So I think it's really great for people who want to try out, like, I want to make this DataViz story, but I don't necessarily have all of the skills, or I just kind of want to see like what it's like, what goes into making one of these stories. So I think that's also a really great opportunity for people who are curious or adjacent to this space. And that probably lends itself really well to to just bringing in or injecting a lot of creativity, just having so many diverse like skill sets and viewpoints and everything really probably contributes to that, I'd imagine. I've also heard that, Russell, your role is changing a little bit um, in tandem with these changes. You hear a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And I mean, I, this is, I guess, gets into a kind of how we structure our company a little bit, but I do a lot of just front-end development and story creation and that's kind of like my bread and butter but i've in the last year i've had a lot more interest and like we've been talking about networking with other people and collaborating with them and to caitlin's point we need to like match make on the client and sometimes if we have a specific project with a skill we're like oh we either don't have that or maybe we don't have the bandwidth for it bandwidth for that at the moment we can reach out to people and that's something that I've been turned into my actual like day-to-day role recently. And the reason we were able to do that is because we run on a very loosely inspired form of holacracy, which is like a way of self-governance, something that Matt kind of pitched a while ago because he started the company, but didn't want to be the boss. He wanted everyone to have a voice and be an active participant in the company. So we've been reading, leaning into this holocratic method. And so the way that I started taking on this role, which Caitlin has called CTO, <laughs> is we have a proposal system where anyone on our team is very clear um, decision-making structure and stuff. So there's certain things that certain people own exclusively, but then 
most everything else at the at our company anyone can create a proposal on and for this was a, a good example i was like i want to shift part of my role so i wrote up a proposal brought it to the team and there's like this very specific process called what's it called i know the acronym is idm i think it's integrated decision making that sounds right i think that's it yes and we've actually been trialing out a tool called murmur which i think is in private beta which helps streamline that process and so yeah it just goes through this round of here's the proposal does anyone have questions does anyone have reactions and do people like they can object to it or they can consent to it and but through that process i now have part of my role as cto where i get to help figure out who's working on it's kind of staffing who's working on what from an outsider perspective and then just a lot of consulting from a technical standpoint on like how we even develop every project and what we need to think about. Kaylin, you can probably talk more about those things though. Yeah. No, I think like I said this earlier, like Russell and I would have like these long strategy conversations last year. Russell and I have been working together for like four or five years now. And even though we are just like polar opposites people, I don't know, it's like opposites attract or something like that. So we just like, I think work really well together on the daily. I love having him as my coworker and friend. So I was really, (laughs) I know that was sweet. I was really excited that we could actually formalize this because when you're at such a small company, I feel like a lot of these things kind of like fall through the cracks and they're just kind of happening and no one has like written them down or documented that they're actually happening. But when we brought in Rob, I said this earlier, but when we brought in Rob, the managing director, who was absolutely fantastic, a lot of Russell's, Russell was the editor, is the editor at The Pudding. A lot of his kind of editorial management kind of got freed up there. And he's been able to, he can look because again, because he has this lens, he can look at people's portfolios and see things that I don't see. And I think from my perspective, I was doing all of this alone. And I think you, I got like a hero complex that was like, I can do all of this. It's fine. I'm good. I don't need any help. And I think admitting that I needed help and bringing in like another person, which is also very difficult, I think, to do at a small company has just made such a huge difference. We've been able to expand the amount of projects we bring on, work with more people and stuff like that. But it really is all embedded in that. Like, you know, it could be your role. It could be you don't like the family leave policy. So you want to come and make a change. Amelia, I think you you brought a proposal about our health insurance policy pretty early on and things like that. But to kind of like bring it back, I think it kind of fits with the pudding because it we're so self-driven, you know? So it's like, we're not only self-driven, we're not even like, we're exercising those muscles when it comes to like the work we're doing, but we also are exercising those muscles in like how the company operates. A lot of people bring in contractors to do this like HR work, but we have literally written all of our company documentation from the code of conduct to, to our health insurance policy, you know? So, and anyone can make changes on it when they want to. It's really great to have the control over the place that you work, but there's definitely a bit of a learning curve where I think it was like the first week I was there, I was like, can I have this external health insurance to the ones that are offered? And everyone's just like, sure, you just have to like write the policy. (laughs) I'm like, oh man, I don't know how to do this. I guess I'll figure it out. And like literally anytime I'd ask the question, it's just like, yeah, whatever you want it to be, as long as you you don't tank the company, which... I think it's really great once you get used to it, but getting used to that coming from larger companies is definitely a little bit of a mind shift. (laughs) Yeah. It also is just interesting because I feel like you sometimes get a vibe of like, 
this person really doesn't want this to happen, but they can't think of a reason why it's not safe to try. Yeah. So the whole point of it is like, so you kind of have that vibe. You're like, oh God, I know they're not happy with this, but we're going to do it. But I mean, the point of it is to push people out of their comfort zone and to promote experimentation. The reason why we started to do it was that like, any small, we, we hit to the point, we got to the point like three years ago or so, we've been doing it for about two or three years, where like to make one tiny decision, like on an external health insurance policy, everyone had to be in the room and it got very slow. And this forces experimentation to be happening quickly. Like we've done, we did four day work weeks last year. Amelia, I don't know if you told you, we're on four and a half day work weeks right now. Hmm. So we tried out those policies. We tried out a commission model for a while. And this is literally all in like the past six months, just because we were able to kind of like do the, these policies and stuff but there is a learning curve it can be very paralyzing coming in and being like oh so j- just do it and just like yeah just do it <laughs> I promise you trust yourself believe in yourself experimentation is just written into the dna of the yeah. company it's cool yeah and it's great for a lot of things especially again if you care about the company mm-hmm. but i mean it's one of those things where you also have to be comfortable with change because Caitlin just brought up one. We did this experiment on the commission model, which was if we were like over our yearly budget, we could take on more projects and then people would get paid like a commission on them. So for the top of your salary. And we tried that out and there was, and we collected a bunch of data on it and we ran it for six months, six or seven months. And there were some great things about it, but then there were some things that we learned after doing it. We're like, well, we're actually going to shift this policy. And I know it's not something that everyone unanimously wanted to change again. So there's those tensions that you just have to accept as part of the process and kind of like everything there's, there's good and bad to it, but it just comes with the territory. But even from there, even like in that specific situation, you know, we just had a conversation with our coworker. It was like an hour and we just like were very transparent with each other and just talked about like where we were coming from. We literally called them tensions, like what the tensions were and stuff like that and worked through it. So I think it, Although you can kind of get those vibes, I think it just like adds a level of candor to kind of like how you work and stuff like that, because you can just very, very, very clear with everyone about what you like, you know. Well, I could talk about Holacracy all day. I think it's a super interesting topic and I don't think there are many other companies that are operating this way, but I think we're up on time. So it's been so much fun having both of you, Russell and Caitlin on for our chat today and also thanks for joining us nick as well thank you thank you guys thanks for listening we appreciate you spending time with us we also appreciate you helping us spread the word about the show and inviting your friends to the party send a tweet send an email hey pick up the phone give somebody a call people still do that right yeah just text them J.S. Barty is produced by Jared Santo, that's me, with music by Breakmaster Cylinder, that's somebody else. We are brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, we are sitting down with the team behind 1Password to hear how they're going all in on Electron and the web stack. That episode will be hitting your podcast feed next week. Thank you.
I'm Gerhard Zhu, host of Ship It, a show with weekly episodes about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen, like charity majors from Honeycomb. We act like great engineers make great teams, and it's exactly the opposite, in fact. It is great teams that make great engineers. And they farly when the founders of Continuous Delivery. Start off assuming that we're wrong rather than assuming that we're right. Test our ideas, try and falsify our ideas. Those are better ways of doing work. And it doesn't really matter what work it is that you're doing. That stuff just works better. We even experiment on our own open source podcasting platform so that you can see how we implement specific tools and services within changelog.com, what works and what fails. It's like there's a brand new hammer and we grab hold of it and everyone gathers around. We put our hand out and we <laughs> we strike it right on our thumb. And then everybody knows that hammer really hurts when you strike it on your thumb. I'm glad those guys did it. I've learned something instead. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting perspective, but I, I don't see that way. OK, it's an amazing analogy, but I'm not sure that applies here. Listen to an episode that seems interesting or helpful. And if you like it, subscribe today. We'd love to have you with us. Oh,